Well, on Good Friday evening, just a couple of nights ago, we began asking the question, and that question was, why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to die? And we began examining that question in what we've called the men who killed Jesus. We looked on Friday night at the role of Judas in the death of Christ. We saw his incredible greed, which scripturally we saw has far more to do with a core wicked and selfish heart than just simply a love of money. We also saw that the first part to the answer to the question, why did Jesus have to die, is that Judas is not alone. He is not unique. All of us have the same core sinful nature which Judas had. But there were others deeply involved in the death of Christ. I'd like to walk back together to that terrible night and early morning of the the trials of Jesus. Jesus was tried six times. The night in the early morning of his arrest, he was tried three times by Jewish authorities. He was tried three times by Roman authorities. Rather than focus on all of those trials, what I'd like to do this morning is is focus on two of the main characters leading many of these trials, and that is, we'll call them Caiaphas the envious and Pontius Pilate the selfish. We'll start with Caiaphas, although we have to make a little note about Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of the region of Judea. Pilate initially wanted to let Jesus know. A lot of people go. A lot of people don't know that, that he wanted to just let this thing be done. This is important because when Jesus would appear before Pilate, he told Pilate in John 17, uh, John 19, rather, verse 11, he said, He who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Who is that person who delivered Jesus over to Pilate? That is Caiaphas, the high priest, leading the Sanhedrin Council of Jerusalem. Caiaphas is the central central figure, so we'll call him Caiaphas the Envious. If you have your Bible, you can turn with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. If you don't, I'll just read for you. But John chapter 11, we'll begin in verse 45. We'll kind of be going to a number of different scriptures. We have to set the scene here. When Jesus was arrested, it was dark. It was late, late into the night. His disciples had already fallen asleep while he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. This was a time of deep crisis in prayer for the Lord. It was a time of agony. He had taken Peter and James and John with him to a more private place in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Mark fourteen thirty four says, He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And at this point, Jesus entered into this time of intense and emotional prayer to his father. He was spiritually preparing for what was about to happen to him. And now, after his arrest, Jesus is alone. The disciples had scattered for the time being. Matthew twenty six fifty six tells us that all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And now, after Judas and the temple guard had led the way in the arrest of Jesus, now the Romans have taken over. Why were they so intent on worrying about what Jesus would do? Some teacher. Well, this is Passover week. And the Romans had beefed up security by bringing in extra cohorts and soldiers from the fortress in Caesarea up to the north. Why would they do this? Well, because hundreds of thousands of people were descending onto Jerusalem for this Passover week. 
And so the Romans were eager to keep the, the peace and the security. But the Romans, in accordance with their usual practice, they took Jesus first to the local civil and religious authority. And in this case, it would be the high priest. Now, you have to understand the high priest. This was kind of a family business. To get to our thinking about Caiaphas, we have to understand other people in the family. Mainly, we have to go through a man named Annas, who was the former high priest. And as the high priest's role turned into this family business, and even though Annas was no longer officially the high priest, his great influence continued on. And I put it this way, in terms we understand, Caiaphas might have been the high priest, but Annas was the godfather. He was the head of the family. He was the godfather, as it were, over a very corrupt family, which had degenerated into basically growing extremely wealthy off of the temple and running it as a business. Annas had been the high priest from A.D. 6 until A.D. 15 when Pontius Pilate's predecessor, Valerius Gratus, he booted Annas out of the priestly role. Now, according to Jewish law, the high priestly role was for life. But Rome tried to avoid the concentration of power in just one person, and so they frequently changed high priests. But they had a little deal going here. The deal was, we'll change high priests, but we'll keep it all in the same family. And take a wild guess what the deal was. If the high priestly family will provide some kickbacks to the Roman governor and to those in charge. And so even though Rome officially removed Annas, he still had enormous influence According to the historian Josephus, at least five of the sons of Annas had been high priest. And now you have Joseph Caiaphas. Who is he? Well, Annas was out of sons. So he went to his son-in-law, Joseph Caiaphas. And so Caiaphas is technically the high priest, but Annas still really ran the show. So now John reminds his readers that it was the official high priest, Caiaphas, who had made an unconscious prophecy concerning Jesus. And you may remember this. Now, we should briefly note the situation in which Caiaphas made this statement. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. He restored him to his sisters, Mary and Martha. And that brings us now to our text in John eleven forty-five. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So the leaders of Israel, by the way, they didn't try in any way to deny what Jesus did. They didn't deny his miracles. They didn't deny his preaching. Their concern was what people coming to faith in Christ would do to them, to the leaders. The fear of the leadership was that if enough people believed in Jesus, and they even said, if we keep going like this, everyone will believe in him. They were afraid the Romans would take away the wealth and the privileged position of the leaders. They called it our place and would just destroy Israel as they knew it, our nation. They were right to a certain degree because the Romans did not tolerate rebellion at all. But these leaders completely misjudged the intentions of Jesus. Jesus didn't come to earth to start some sort of Israelite rebellion. Luke 19.10 says he came to seek and save the lost. The setting up of his earthly kingdom will come later at the second coming. But the ringleader of the bunch, Joseph Caiaphas, 
the high priest, he speaks up now in verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He was arrogant. He was condescending. He was self-important. He's telling the council, these are 70 of the oldest and the most revered men in all of Jerusalem. He says, you know nothing at all. Caiaphas lasted longer than any other high priest in first century Roman Palestine because he was willing to do whatever it took to keep Rome off his back, including being willing to murder one man in order to keep the peace. Here is his logic. He's saying, look, guys, if one dies, Jesus, then the whole likelihood of an insurrection dies with him and we get to continue on. The sweet deal that we have goes on as always. Verse 53 of chapter 11. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And you notice that he made this unintentional prophecy. He said, one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. We'll come back to that in just a bit. Now that gives us really the background to the trials of Jesus. Turn over a page or two to John chapter 18. John 18, now what Jesus is going to do even more so is he's going to expose the true heart of his accusers. Caiaphas, really the representative of all of them. John chapter 18, beginning in verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Now, right here, the high priest referenced is still, I know it's a little confusing because of this family business deal, but the high priest referenced here is still Annas, the high priest emeritus, the, the former high priest. Caiaphas doesn't get his turn until verse 24. And the center of his concern was who Jesus claimed to be. Who does this guy say he is? When the Jewish leadership would shortly present Jesus to Pontius Pilate, they would explain in John 19, 7, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Now, if you've read your Gospels at all, you know that one of the major problems that Jesus called out the Jewish leadership on was the fact that they were hypocrites, that they always wanted to do outwardly what looked right, and inwardly they were wrong and they were sinful. So, here they are doing this again. Listen very carefully. This is an important detail. In a formal Jewish hearing in the first century, it was illegal to question the defendant. You weren't allowed to question him. The case had to rest on the testimony of other witnesses. So what you have here is Annas, the unofficial high priest, questioning Jesus. Oh, this isn't a formal hearing. We're just having a talk. And so Caiaphas, the real high priest, he got around this law, letting his father-in-law do the initial dirty work. But Jesus doesn't answer directly. Verse 20, Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Jesus says nothing about his disciples, though the question was related to them as well. He's determined to protect them. But he says that he said nothing in secret. Yes, he met with his disciples privately, but that wasn't to subvert them or to start some sort of rebellion. It was simply to teach them in more detail. That's all. And so there's no point in questioning the disciples because 
Thousands of people heard everything that Jesus had to say. And in fact, Jesus drives this point home in verse 21. Why do you ask me? Notice how quickly he's doing the questioning. Why do you ask me? All those who have heard me, heard me what I said. Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. What's he saying? Well, Jesus is pointing out that already this trial is taking on an air of being illegal. The authorities, if they were actually trying to find the truth, they would be questioning the witnesses as to what Jesus taught. As a matter of fact, the witnesses for Jesus were supposed to be heard before the witnesses against him. And by the way, it was illegal to try to induce any sort of self-accusation. You know, we have that same law in our country as part of our legal system, the Fifth Amendment, Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution says that no person, quote, shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, unquote. They had the same law. And yet this is precisely what Annas is attempting to do to get Jesus to expose himself. And Jesus instead has exposed the hypocrisy and the corruption and the sin of his accusers. But it gets better. Jesus nails them in verse 22. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you would answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? So one of the temple guards struck Jesus. It's a Greek word that means to slap with great power. And so he probably slapped him in the side of the head, the ear, very, very painful. It was illegal to strike an unconvicted person, but no one was there to challenge this. No one was there to defend the rights of Christ. And Jesus spoke to the officer who slapped him. If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? What is Jesus saying here? He says, if I've broken the law, tell me which one. And now he challenged his accusers and he already unmasked them as to being those unable to win the case in fairness. And he says, if I have broken the law, show me which one. But if I haven't, why do you strike me? What are they doing? This is a totalitarian kangaroo court. It's all it is. It's an unofficial way to quickly get Jesus convicted. The one who could have avenged himself didn't. He went all the way to the cross. Can you imagine being a man who strikes the Son of God? But he was also bearing witness to the truth. He was showing what was really happening. Now, just to be clear, Jesus wasn't in a desperate uh, legal self-defense here trying to be acquitted. He's highlighting the wickedness of how he's being treated. He's highlighting his own sinlessness and the sinfulness of all those around him. And by challenging them, now he's revealed their love of evil. You have to remember this. There are no ignorant people here. The Jewish leadership knew the truth about Jesus. They never questioned his miracles. They never challenged him as to all the things that he did that proved without a shadow of a doubt who he was. Why were they doing this, though? John 3.19 says, This is the judgment. The light has come to the world, and the people loved the darkness. That's why they were doing this. And so to keep this mock trial going as quickly as possible, the trial had to move from unofficial now to become official. And in verse 24, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. 
Annas didn't get anywhere with Jesus, and he was in fact condemned by Jesus. And if the Jews were going to be successful in their attempt, their plot to murder the Lord, the legal, legal accusation had to be made official, had to be done by the high priest in order to get Jesus to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, who only, only he had the power to execute. And so Jesus will be sent to Caiaphas, and now we're reminded again of the significant words spoken by Caiaphas. Look back with me at verse 14 of chapter 18. Verse 14, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, what did Caiaphas mean by that? Caiaphas meant better to murder one man than have all the people turn on us. But his words carried more than just the voluntary wickedness that he was devising. They also carried the providential meaning which God intended and Caiaphas did not. John 11, beginning in verse 51, we skipped this section earlier, said, He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Did you catch that? Caiaphas said, It is better that one man die, God's meaning was, so that he could gather all of his future saved people together. Who is that? Here we are. Here we are. Because Caiaphas was the high priest, he was still technically God's spokesman on earth. But he unintentionally spoke prophetically about the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, not to save their little family business, but to save all who would come to faith in Christ. What should Caiaphas have done? What should he have done? He's the very spokesman of God on earth. He should have bowed to the ground. He should have said, you are God in the flesh. You are the son of God. You are the Messiah. You are the one prophesied in the Old Testament. But he didn't. He knew the truth about Christ, but he went the way of evil. Why? Because he is Caiaphas, the envious. Put yourself in his shoes for a moment. Along comes this carpenter's son. A guy with some rough hands and the last anybody knew of him, he'd been hanging the door or framing the house. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene and he upsets the Jewish establishment with his ministry. He hadn't jumped through all the hoops the Jewish leaders were expected to jump through. He hadn't gone through the right door. He hadn't climbed the right ladder of power. He had no credentials. He had no references, no educational background that they knew of. He hung around with the worst of society. He proclaimed hope through the gospel to prostitutes and tax collectors and to all kinds of people who had given up even trying to look religious. The Jewish leaders cared deeply for outward appearances, for ceremony, for looking spiritual to people. And what did Jesus say to them? He told them that you're frauds. He said you're immoral and you are wicked. Matthew 23, 27, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. He said that to the most powerful men in Israel. He was undermining their spiritual authority. He was claiming to be the Lord of the Sabbath. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be the Messiah predicted in the Old Testament. He did things none of them could ever have done nor even imagine. He was healing people by the thousands. He was preaching sermons to tens of thousands. 
And now the same people who used to whisper and bow in awe at the outward religiosity of the Pharisees and the priests. Oh, look how long their robes are. Oh, look, they get to sit at the best places at the feasts. Oh, look how religious they are. Those same people said, you know, they look good in their long robes, but we're going to follow Jesus by the tens of thousands. So, of course, Caiaphas is panicked. Their little system is breaking down. So Caiaphas and the Council of Jerusalem put on this show. They put on this sham, this kangaroo court. They pretended to be concerned with political stability and theological purity of Israel. That Jesus really should die for the good of the people to keep them from being foolish. Now, since the Jews were prohibited by Rome from executing criminals themselves, they turned Jesus over to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And even Pilate figured out the real motivation of Caiaphas and the Jewish leaders. Listen to this. Mark 15, 10. For he, that is Pilate, perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Even he figured it out. What is envy? If envy were one side of a coin, the other side would be vanity and pride. The two go together. The envious person is first proud of himself he believes he should be first and not someone else. And so the envy of Caius, Caiaphas was really a statement that Caiaphas should be first, not the Son of God being first. If you wonder what the right attitude would be, we think about John the Baptist. John the Baptist said of Jesus Christ in John 3.30, he said, He must increase, but I must, what, decrease. Mark 1.7, John the Baptist preached, After me, comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. John the Baptist said, Jesus is so great, I can't even get on the ground to take his shoes off for him. It's very important to understand that to be a true believer in Jesus Christ, you cannot still be first. You can't be first. In fact, you can't even try to be equal. You can't try to be equal by somehow maybe adding Jesus into your life as one of several things equally important to you. You can't do that. To be a follower of Christ, you renounce everything. You repent of your sin, which has so offended the God of creation, the God who made you. And by faith alone, you do what Jesus said is required to belong to him. Mark eight thirty four. he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his what? His cross and follow me. But Caiaphas and his cohorts, they wanted to be first. And they, therefore, became a part of the death of Christ, all out of envy. What about Pilate? Pilate doesn't really care about Jesus one way or another. Pilate had a different problem. We'll call him Pilate the Selfish. Now, when Jesus was brought before Pilate, Pilate was just trying to navigate his way through a touchy political situation. If he wore a watch, and they didn't have them back then, but if he wore one, he would be looking at it going, man, when can we just get this thing done? This is touchy. People are going to get mad. We don't want that. We just want to keep the peace here. In fact, Jesus had already placed an invitation before Pilate. Still in John chapter 18, look with me at verse 36. Jesus answered, speaking to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. 
But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now Pilate, he's heard that Jesus is not of this world. His kingdom is not of this world. He ignores the invitation that's put before him. First part of verse 38, Pilate said to him, what is truth? He ignores the invitation. Verse 38 continues, after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Now, we need to put a little asterisk right here because at this point, John's gospel compresses two meetings into one, just sort of shortens it up. Luke 23 tells us, though, that right at this moment, Pilate found out that Jesus was from Galilee, the northern province of Israel. And so he sent him to Herod, the Galilean Roman authority, who happened to be in in Jerusalem. Pilate was saying, hey, maybe someone else can figure this out for me. I don't have to get my hands dirty here. Herod questioned Jesus. Jesus didn't answer him. When the chief priests and the scribes mocked and, and accused Jesus, At that point, Herod and his soldiers made sport of Jesus. They treated him with contempt and ridicule, but they didn't give a verdict, no guilty verdict. And so Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate. And I would imagine Jesus coming back, being escorted back to Pilate, and Pilate's all, I almost got out of that one. Now I've got to face this. Now we pick it up in the second meeting here in verse 39. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Again, Pilate finds no guilt in him. The gospel of Luke adds Pilate's reasoning to this in Luke 23, 14. He said to them, you brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining them before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. By the way, did you notice that Pilate, to all the Jewish leaders, called Jesus the king of the Jews? He didn't believe that. He was just taking a little shot at these guys. But instead of having the fortitude and the integrity necessary to just release Jesus to do the right thing, he offers a concession. Do you want me to release one prisoner? This was something he did every year at Passover. He should have released Jesus anyway, but he offers this concession. Here's the irony, though. The end of John 18 says Barabbas was a robber. That's a shortened version. We know what he really was. What's ironic is that the Jews outside call for Barabbas to be released. You know what Barabbas was? Barabbas was an insurrectionist and a murderer. In fact, he was the head of a group of insurrectionists and murderers. And yet they wanted him released. Now, Pilate was an intelligent man. Very smart. You didn't get to be the governor of a whole province of Rome because you were a dummy. He'd already seen through the thin accusations of the Jews and it couldn't have escaped his notice how ironic it was that the Jewish leaders who normally distanced themselves from insurrectionists and from murderers because remember, they're the type of people that are going to get them in trouble, get them in hot water. Yet they said, release the rebel. Let Barabbas out. And they called for the execution of Jesus who had committed no crime at all. In other words, the Jews were shouting out that Jesus is worse than Barabbas. He's worse. 
chapter 19, verse 1, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. He flogged him. Now, Pilate had already declared Jesus innocent. And so we're shocked to see Pilate having Jesus flogged here, whipped. But what was this? This was another weak attempt to let Jesus go free. It it was sort of this sort of thinking. Yeah, who knows? Maybe if I flog him, if I give him a little whipping here, that'll satisfy the bloodlust of the Jewish leaders. And when they see Jesus' bloodied body, maybe they'll have some sympathy and the crowd will break up. But we come to an interesting little challenge here. Mark 15, 15 says that Jesus was flogged after Pilate released Barabbas. But the Gospels always fit together perfectly. They're like a divine jigsaw puzzle where all the pieces fit. The answer to this puzzle lies in the fact that Jesus was flogged more than once. In fact, we we talked about this last year in our series on John. The Romans were extremely good at torture. They had three different types of floggings. They had one called the fustigatio. The fustigatio was a minor beating given for misdemeanors. It was given with a severe warning. And they would give him the little, the fustigatio and say, now get out of here and don't do it again. But then they had the flagellatio. And then the flagellatio, this is a brutal scourging given to criminals who had committed pretty serious crimes. But then they took it to a whole different level in the verberatio. The verberatio was a savage flogging that was always a precursor to other punishments, usually execution. In the verberatio, the victim was stripped down. He was tied to a post and then beaten by several different Roman soldiers. Now, the Jews had limits on scourgings. 39 lashes was the limit. The Romans didn't have any limits. The soldiers kept going until they were exhausted or until the commander called them off. This flogging used a whip that had bone and lead and pieces of metal lashed into the the ends of the, the lashes. And these beatings themselves often led to death on the spot. And if the victim wasn't dead, you could see his bones and very often you could see even his internal organs. It was brutal. Well, which one did Jesus receive? Well, we could make a very good case that here in John, while Pilate was still trying to let Jesus go to appease the crowd, he administered the fustigatio, the least of all the floggings. But once he finally gave in and he turned Jesus in to be crucified, Jesus was flogged again, this time with the savage verberatio. This is why he was too weak to even carry his own cross. And so Jesus was beaten first as a common petty offender with the fustigatio. And ultimately he was given the savage verberatio beating of a major criminal who deserves to die. Verse 2 of chapter 19. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. The soldiers were permitted to take part in harming and mocking someone on trial. And they heard the question that Jesus might be a king. So they got this idea. We'll we'll provide some torturous kingly attire. And so they shoved this painful crown of thorns on his head, probably from a date palm. They had thorns that could be up to eight, nine, ten inches long. They put a purple robe on him, probably an old military cloak They found hanging around. They patted it hard onto his back, which had already been whipped from the first scourging. Matthew 27 adds the detail that they put a reed, a stick in his right hand as sort of a mock king scepter. 
and said, Hail, King of the Jews! The irony is they had no idea that they were correct. They spoke more than they knew. Now, Pilate took a bet. He bet that this flogging and this humiliation and this torture would satisfy the Jews and avoid a potential riot, because that's what he was trying to avoid. Verse 4, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Again, Pilate says, Look, he's not guilty. I find no guilt in him. And he presents Jesus bruised and bleeding, his face and head dripping blood from the crown of thorns, the cloak sticking to his bloodied back, this ridiculous stick in his hand. But this wasn't enough for the bloodlust of the Jews. Verse 6, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Anyone who wasn't a Roman citizen and was deemed guilty of rebellion against Rome could be crucified. Pilate isn't abdicating his sole power here to issue the death penalty. He's simply saying, you brought them to me, but you won't accept what I'm saying. So you deal with them. And so now the chief priests change tactics. They're appealing to Roman law. That didn't help them. So now they appeal to Jewish law. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Well, now they had been trying to convince Pilate that, you know, Jesus is a danger to Roman rule, but now they reveal their true motives. Because a Roman governor not only represented Rome's authority, but by policy, they tried to support the local laws of a conquered nation. So they're saying that if he won't crucify him based on charges of sedition against Rome, then they should crucify him based on their law, on Jewish law. After all, Jesus said he was God, and in their minds, that creates blasphemy. Now, this is pretty disturbing to Pilate. Verse 8, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. It's a, it's a Greek phrase that means he was very, very afraid. Now, we're not told why he's afraid, but now this is a different matter altogether. Claiming to be the rightful king is one thing, but Pilate just learned something. This guy's claiming to be the son of God, or in Pilate's mind, probably the son of the gods. What's Pilate's problem? I just had the Son of God whipped and scourged, and so he's very afraid. So Pilate decides to try a different line of questioning with Jesus. In verse 9, he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Now, why is Pilate asking this? Where are you from? <laughs> are you really from, <clears throat> from heaven? Because you know that whole whipping thing, maybe we could sort of work something out. But Jesus didn't answer. He fulfilled Isaiah 53, 7 that said he would go like a lamb to its shears. Verse 10. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? This silence is a huge insult to Pilate. Prisoners were expected to beg and to grovel and to plead and to say, please have mercy on me. But Jesus just stood there silently. What did he show? He showed that Pilate had no power in this situation whatsoever. And so Jesus does give one more answer, not to Pilate's original question, where are you from? But in verse 11, 
Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Now, you think that maybe after this statement of saying where the real power lies, Jesus might be gaining ground here, but he's not trying to gain ground. He's not trying to mount a legal defense. He's merely setting the record straight on who's actually in charge of all of this. The first part of verse 12 tells us that Pilate still tried to release Jesus, but here it comes. Now the Jews dropped the bombshell on Pilate, and we truly see his selfishness come out. Verse 12 is the bombshell. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. This is shocking. Because to try to get Jesus executed, the Jewish authorities are painting themselves as good, loyal subjects of Rome. Oh, we love Caesar. We're loyal to Caesar. We're loyal to you, Pilate. But now they have punched Pilate at his weakest point. They have hit a nerve. Why is this? Because he was terrified of Caesar. You want to know how we know this? Pilate had good reason to be terrified of Caesar. Tiberius Caesar had appointed Pilate as the governor of Judea on the recommendation of a mutual friend they had, a man by the name of Sejanus. Sejanus was the commander of Tiberius Caesar's personal guard. He was high up. He was the best friend of Tiberius Caesar. It was said, if you made a friend of Sejanus, you made a friend of Caesar. But Tiberius Caesar had a reputation for being extremely suspicious of anyone under him, and he never hesitated to exact quick revenge. 24 months before the trial of Jesus, Tiberius executed his best friend, Sejanus. If Tiberius would kill his best friend, Sejanus, no one was safe. And so the Jews had spoken the magic words to play into Pilate's greatest fears. And the ominous moment arrives. Up until now, all of this could have been characterized as an informal discussion But now things get official. Verse 13. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the stone pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Pilate is now about to render official judgment. But right then, a messenger comes running up to Pilate. One more chance. Maybe maybe there's a note. Maybe there's a, a verbal message. Matthew 27, 19 tells us that while he was sitting on the judgment seat, he's just sat down. His wife sent word to him. Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Oh, no, maybe Jesus is the son of God. And yes, doubts are high in Pilate's mind. Here's the irony. Jesus, who is the rightful king of the Jews, is presented as seemingly helpless, as an unsuccessful insurrection leader, as one who has failed. He's about to be condemned. Verse 14, Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And here it is. The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So they delivered him over to be crucified. The Jews rejected God as their king. We have no king but Caesar. Who are the true blasphemers? It is the Jews. 
And by adamantly insisting that they want no king but Caesar, they have proclaimed that they want no part of the kingdom of God because they're disowning God's son. Mark 15, verse 15 adds the detail. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now Jesus received the dreaded verberatio, and he's delivered to the will of the Jews. In the end, Pilate was looking out for number one, and you might say, you know, that's a lot of pressure being the Roman governor. I, I can sort of understand that. At the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, in the beginning of the book of Acts, there's a man listed, his name is Theophilus. He is a Roman governor who has come to faith in Christ. Pilate could have done the same, but he didn't. Oh, he tried to rid himself of guilt. He tried to not look bad. Matthew twenty-seven twenty-four. when Pilate saw he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent. Of this man's blood, see to it yourselves. Listen, here's the great irony of the Christian faith. If you want to gain everything, you must give up everything. If you want to be clean, you must say that you're dirty. If you want to be forgiven, you must say that you're unforgivable. If you want to receive the mercy of God, you have to acknowledge that you don't deserve mercy. If you want to be right before God, you must acknowledge that you have always been wrong before him. If you want to save yourself, you must die to yourself. That is the irony of the Christian faith. Or to put it as Jesus did, John in Matthew 16, 25, whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The envy of Caiaphas and the selfishness of Pilate, and on Good Friday we saw the greed of Judas. These are characteristics of all of humanity. Psalm 14, 2 and 3 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even, what's the last word? One. Psalm 51, 5, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Now, rightfully so, the Gospels put the major blame for the crucifixion of Christ on men such as Judas and Caiaphas and Pilate, men that the Bible calls lawless men, men who are a law unto themselves. Do you remember our original question, why did Jesus have to die? Yes, certainly it was because of lawless men. But listen carefully. Jesus was brought to his death by the acts of sinful and lawless men, but Jesus was not a martyr. Jesus did not die a martyr. No, he went to the cross completely willingly. As a matter of fact, the bigger, the fuller, the more complete answer to the question, why did Jesus have to die, isn't given to us until the Apostle Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost. He's preaching to thousands of Jews, many of whom undoubtedly were among the throngs who said, crucify him, crucify him. And Peter answers the question, why did Jesus have to die? Here's the answer, Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Did you hear that? Why did Jesus have to die? Because it was the plan of God.
If I could put it this way, Jesus did not simply die because men are greedy like Judas or envious like Caiaphas or selfish like Pilate. Jesus died to carry out the plan of supreme love initiated by his father. That's why Jesus had to die, to save all who would willingly place their faith in Christ. This is Resurrection Sunday. I've been telling you about the death of Christ. On Friday night, I gave you a little hint. At the Lord's table, we read the prophetic account of the death of Christ 700 years before Christ was born from Isaiah 53, that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities upon him, was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. But when we read the account of the death of Christ from Isaiah 53, the plan of God in love to provide forgiveness of sin for all who would repent and receive that payment for sin made by Christ, in that account in Isaiah 53, you may have noticed something unusual about the death of Christ. Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, here's where it gets a little odd. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, this is still speaking of Christ, I will divide him a a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Huh. What's this? What is this? This interwoven in here. Did you catch these phrases? He shall see his offspring. What does that mean? It means that Jesus will see all who follow after him because he made payment for their sins. That doesn't sound like someone who's dead. He will have a reward, a a portion, a spoil. He'll divide the reward with many. What does this mean? It means that all who follow after Jesus Christ will have the same reward that he does. This doesn't make sense. Jesus died. But Isaiah says something shocking He shall prolong his days. What does this mean? It means that Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, would raise himself from the dead. He would raise himself. And in fact, Jesus not only raised himself from the dead, he predicted that he would die and be raised up. John 2, beginning in verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Who does that? Who says, I'm going to die and exactly three days later raise myself up? John 10, 17 and 18, Jesus was abundantly clear. He said, I will bring myself back to life. It's too late for Caiaphas. It's too late for Pilate. They rejected the one who could save them from their envy from their selfishness. And ironically, those who acted as judges over Jesus will themselves appear before a judge. John 5.22, Jesus said, For the Father judges no one, but all judgment has been given to the Son. And at the great white throne judgment is recorded in Revelation 20, Caiaphas and Pilate will now appear 
before the living and resurrected Jesus Christ to give an account. And because they rejected Christ, because they would not take his offer of forgiveness, their names are not found in heaven's book of life. And Revelation 20.15 says, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's too late for Caiaphas, too late for Pilate. Last Friday, too late for Judas. But the risen and the living and the glorious Jesus Christ is still making an offer. It's not too late for you. It's not too late. If you know Christ, you revel in this and you're thankful, you rejoice that you know the risen and living Savior. But listen, some of you here, some of you even watching online, you may relate well to Caiaphas and Pilate. You may say, those guys are way more like me than I anticipated. But the offer of salvation from your sin, it's here. It's being extended right now. The book of Hebrews says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You don't know how long you'll live. You don't know. You you can say, I think I'll think about this for another day or another week or another month or another year, year. You don't know. This may be your last day on earth. Now you might be asking, well, how do I come to Christ? I can't see him. Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God did what? Raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Jesus said in Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. What does it mean to repent? It means to tell God how anguished you are over your own sin, that you've been greedy, you've been envious, you've been selfish, and ask him for mercy. And the payment that Christ gave at the cross would pay for your sins. So the, the answer to the question, how do I come to Christ, is just ask. Just ask. And God will give you his Holy Spirit. He'll make you a new creation in Christ. And you know what's amazing? You will no longer be accounted as one who is greedy or one who is envious or one who is selfish. But in the record books of heaven, you will be counted as one who is righteous. You're counted as righteous. You're credited with the very righteousness of Christ himself. How do you come to Christ? Just ask. Just ask. Toward that end, I'd like to pray for just a moment. And so if you would bow your heads with me. For some of you, this is a moment of decision. And we don't ask anybody to do anything outward because this is not an outward decision. This is in your heart. But we believe with all of our heart in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is by his grace, by his mercy, that even now you have heard the gospel this day. This might be your last chance. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Our Father, we would come to you now, thankful for Jesus on this beautiful, sunny day, so representative of the glory of the resurrection of Christ. We revel in the salvation offered by not only his death, but by his resurrection, which has justified us. I pray, Lord, for a man or a woman, a boy or a girl who has not yet bent the knee, not yet acknowledged that they are greedy and envious and selfish. I pray, Lord, that in this quiet moment, they would bend the knee to Jesus Christ and ask for mercy. And Jesus himself has promised that anyone who would come unto him will be saved. We thank you. We praise you. And it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.